I'm much too old to know everything. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Mike Boyle, legendary coach that needs very little introduction to anyone in the field. Coach Boyle is the owner of MBSC, as well as the creator of strengthcoach.com. Today, we kind of dove into the the outlier approach, and I, I thought it was interesting talking to Coach Boyle, because if you know anything about Coach Boyle, he's very pointed and uh, has lots of, uh, you could it's say, discussions on Twitter and discussions on Instagram about his belief points and, and why he's so passionate about his belief points. And this is something I talk about a lot on the podcast, but bringing on people with a pointed belief rather than trying to stay in that middle ground, uh, bringing on people that kind of take us out of that middle ground and into one extreme or the other extreme. And this is something that I think Coach Boyle does really well. And we kind of dove into one, how he's able to come up with his extreme approach and then two, how he continues to filter information. And I think this is something that I was really interested in talking with Coach Boyle about is he's at the later end of his coaching career. He, he, he's kind of seen it all. And how do you go about kind of your coaching career seeing everything, seeing all the trends, seeing everything, all the fads that pop up, all the cool exercises on Instagram that pop up and being able to process and take what is good and then leave what isn't. And he had a really good point talking about dumping it into your filter and kind of processing things and chewing it and realizing that even if you don't agree with it, you can take something from it. And I I thought that was really awesome. So hopefully you guys get something out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. I will coach. It's awesome to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited for you to be here. Well, thanks for having me. I said, I listened to your Tony Holler and I said, I got to talk to this guy. I like him. I just, I, I liked your approach. I really like the fact that you, I don't know, um, you have an intellectual approach to it, which is, uh, unfortunately I think lacking in our profession. I think we've got a lot of, a lot of followers, a lot of lemmings, a lot of people. I said, I call them, you know, a lot of guys want to, you know, pull their hoodie up and, put some death metal on and do back squats. And it's like, yeah, that I, we were having a conversation yesterday with one of our interns and she was like, you mean you don't do any back squats? And I said, no, she goes, oh, I still love that feeling. And I said, and you will love that feeling until you hurt yourself. <laughs> but then you won't love that feeling anymore. I said, and worse yet, you won't love that feeling when you hurt someone else. I said, you need to, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we got on, but until you've hurt, and I hate to say this, but until you've hurt a kid, it's really easy to be super cavalier about, you know, I used to love the people, oh, you, you know, you got to go for it. You got to lay it on the line, you know, all the, all that standard bullshit. And then you see some kid who's hurt and out and is really badly injured because you asked him to lay on the line in something that you thought was important. And then you start thinking, shit, that's not that important. You know, I got a kid now who's, you know, who maybe is out for an indefinite period of time, or maybe he's going to have back surgery, or maybe he's going to have shoulder surgery, or whatever it is, because I was coaching like a meathead. And, and I think that's part, sadly, it shouldn't be part of the process. You shouldn't have to hurt yourself or hurt somebody else to rise to a state of awareness. But um, I wrote an article one time called uh, Slamming Your Hand in a Car Door. And I basically said that if you'd slammed your hand in a car door, and then our first conversation was about, how you couldn't wait to get back to the car to be able to slam your hand in it again, that I wouldn't think you were very smart. But we had that conversation so often with people about squatting is it is the particular one 
in general, where someone's like, I hurt my back squatting or running is the same. You know, I got hurt running, you know, I, I, whatever, stress fracture. You know, I'm working my way back and I'm kind of like, why are you working your way back? Like you understand the mechanism of your injury. And then people will say, well, you know, it was, it was the shoes or I did the lift wrong or I didn't like whatever. It doesn't make any difference. History will repeat itself. The best, the best indicator of future injuries are previous injuries. And I think you should look that way in your program too. When you're looking at your program and I can go back God, 30 years, one year we had five shoulder surgeries after the uh, football or after the off season subacromial decompressions, rotator cuffs, all this stuff that they were doing. And I thought, okay, we're doing something wrong. We shouldn't have five guys who end up at the end of our strength program having surgery for something that seems to be directly related to our strength program. And the funny thing is we started doing chin-ups. We were, again, we were standard sort of chest, shoulder tries and a couple sets of lat pull downs. This was probably, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And I thought, wow, our, you know, our strength to body weight ratio is lousy. Our push to pull ratio is lousy. I need to improve that. And we've never looked back. We've never had another shoulder surgery since that year that I thought was related to the strength program. They were all, I mean, we did have some, you know, you always going to have trauma. You're going to have guys in games. You're going to have, you know, your, the odd dislocation or whatever. But we never had overuse things that we basically caused ourselves. Sorry. You'll find that I can, I'll give really long answers to really short questions. No, and that, I mean, this is the best. I talk to people all the time about like my favorite podcast or when I have outliers like yourself on the podcast, because even if it's not like we agree on everything or some like, and this is where people get mad, like when, when there is an outlier and I'm like, you have to deal with it all the time on Twitter, like a troll that gets mad at you for being so on one side of things. It's like, that's, that's who you grab and learn from. Like there's so many middle ground people out there. Like there, there's so many like kind of just bubble people that play it safe, that won't say anything, that won't challenge the field, that won't kind of push one way or the other. And I was like, man, like there, there needs to be more people that are one side or the other and they believe in what they believe in because that's how you move at least one, like you move forward or backwards rather than just kind of just, I feel like a lot of times we're, we're so safe in our thoughts and in our approach that we're never actually challenging anything and kind of just stay stuck. You're right. And that's what attracted me to Tony. I brought Tony in to speak to our staff. And my staff was horrified, some people at Tony, because Tony basically said, I don't care about the weight room. I don't care if anybody lifts weights. And, and people were like, I've read his stuff. He says, don't lift. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but don't listen to that part. Yeah. Listen to the other parts. Because we're not going to stop lifting because Tony said so. But it doesn't make him wrong about something else. I just don't think that makes him right about that. And, and as I said, I look at it and think, you know, the other thing you have to realize is, and I talk about this all the time, you've got to figure out what somebody's lens is. What is, because even though you may not think you have a lens, you do. You, you have a way in which you see everything. And maybe that lens is American football. Maybe that lens is track and field. Maybe that lens is um, soccer. And your, your view is going to be colored by your lens. You can't avoid it. And so you've got to kind of know, like, it's like for me, I'm not a hockey person, but my lens is hockey. I've spent the last 30 years in really high-level hockey, so I tend to think in hockey terms and think about hockey players. Even when I'm not necessarily working with a hockey player, I'll see through that lens, and sometimes I have to remind myself, hey, flip the lens. You know, look, at, look at it in a slightly different way, but knowing that, like I said, someone like Tony, his lens is track and field. He's trying to get somebody just faster at running, and I'm looking at it. I always look at it and say, what can I learn from Tony about getting faster at running? I don't need Tony's program. I don't need RPR. I don't need to not be in the weight room. There are things that I don't need, 
but I do need to get faster at running. And here's a guy who seems to know something about that. So to me, you need to have that ability to, um, to listen and to, uh, as I always say, to disagree without dislike. I can disagree with somebody and not necessarily dislike them. I can, I can dislike some people that I agree with. It, it can be a little bit of both, but you have to, and you kind of alluded to it, you've got to be willing to listen and to have the conversation because you otherwise won't, you're not going to learn. It's impossible to learn without either reading or listening, generally speaking. That's just, I don't know another way to do it. And if you're, if you're not capable of that, and that's what you said, the middle ground people a lot of times are not readers and they're not listeners. They're just rote repeaters. They just keep, they listened once. Maybe it was a really long time ago and they felt like, okay, that was enough listening. I'm good. I listened. I know what I need to know and I'm just going to go do my job. And that's so many strength coaches. I look at the, I posted a Twitter picture the other day of one of our kids, Conister Han, who's um, trying to get back in the NFL, doing um, slideboard lunges with 90-pound dumbbells. And I'm like, you, you got to look at that. And it, you have to look at that and think, wow, there's something to this bilateral deficit idea. This guy's just repping 180 on one leg. Like, it's pretty darn easy. And it was. It was the first time he'd done him in a while. He just grabbed the 90s because he's a big, strong kid. And you start looking at that and thinking, doesn't that make you think about this bilateral deficit idea? Doesn't it make, you know, wouldn't you scratch your head and think, you know, Mike Boyle's been saying that for a long time. And God, that's an awful lot of weight on one leg. You know, do I, do I think that guy's an 800 squatter? <laughs> you know, it's like, so I don't know. I guess um, you need to be, you need to be skeptical and you need to be curious at the same time. Yeah. And this is, I've been writing about this a lot and I I call it kind of like the no expert approach and the biggest, and then the no expert approach isn't so much attacking any of the experts out there. To me, it is first and foremost, understanding like you yourself are not the expert and that's where you need to be able to go and learn. And like you said, I, I love the point that you made, like skeptical and curious at the same time of like, cause both of those things, like I, I, I feel like a lot of people may be more on the skeptical side, but it's like, I feel like we're not asking enough questions. And, and I think a lot of it is we're never able to detach enough from our ideas and detach enough from our programs. Like I know, I know coaches out there that like, if you say that program, that lift, that thing is bad, they will be pissed at you for a long time because they're so attached to that yeah. thing. I'm like, man, that's, that's not who you are. Like <laughs> that's one, that's your job. And that's a part of your job. Like, we need to be able to detach from all of this and just take an outside look at what's really happening. Well, I said, my favorite guys are the guys that come around. So I have some, some friends, some internet friends. I call them me and my internet boyfriends. These are guys that like, like, I don't really know, but I know like in some cases I've never met them. The, these are the guys who've come around and realized that, Hey, wait, our Kierwin flats, one of them, you know, rugby strength coach on, he always, and he's great about it. Cause he's a, another nonconformist and he comes right out and said, Oh, I used to be such a pussy. I used to still really think you had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> and, and now I realize that you do. And another buddy, his Mike Guadango, I just did it. As he said the same thing. You know, he's like, me and Joe DeFranco used to laugh at you. And, you know, what, like what a clown you were. He said, and now I look at it and think, wow, like really smart clown. <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> it, but when you say to somebody that you don't like what they like or you don't, and I look, I kind of, you know, I try to, I'm an analogist. I love analogies. It would be like you saying, you know, I really love hot dogs. Me being like, man, I hate hot dogs. I think they absolutely suck. And you think, I'm never talking to Mike again. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, 
Yes, like you, you see, it's hot dogs. That's the end of our our relationship's over. But that's how people feel about you know things, squats, back squats, you know whatever it is. It, when you say something, people do. They have that. It's almost visceral reaction, and um, you know, and then they they just completely write you off. Okay, I'm never listening to another word this guy says. But then at some point later, I always feel I you know, and this is my own whatever conceit or lack of modesty. I feel like everybody's going to agree with me as they get older over time, all the go heavy or go home, heavy back squat, blah, 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 guys. They'll all be Mike Boyle guys somewhere down the road. If they stay in the profession long enough, because they'll realize, and I just am, I'm rewriting my, the second book that I wrote called designing strength training programs and facilities. And I decided I wanted to rewrite it because I loved the book, but I think I wrote it in 2005 or something. And it's pretty, it's pretty outdated now. But you know, when you start rewriting a book, and reanalyzing the things that you used to think are important. Even you yourself, you, you come around to like, wow, you know, I can't, yeah, I guess, I guess I said that, you know, I guess I said that in 2005. And when I rewrote my new function, functional training for sports, it was the same way. The editors at human kinetics said, we want you to rewrite the book. And I thought, why rewrite it? It's a pretty good book. And the editor, God bless him. Ted Miller said, Mike, I just would like you to reread the book. He said, if you reread the book and you think it's a great book, then I won't bother you about this anymore. And I reread the book and I sent him an email. I was like, Ted, you're right. That book sucks. <laughs> like who wrote that shit? And um, because I said things, you know, I said, don't static stretch. I didn't even like the foam roll wasn't even in the book. You know, there are things I'm like, wow, there's some really big gaps in this book. And I mean, there was a, just a ton of stuff on squatting and on teaching squatting. And I mean, there was even, there was some unstable surface stuff in there, which, you know, we don't do any of. So it's, I don't know. I just think you need to be evolving in any profession, I don't care what you do. You need to be evolving. Yeah. And I, we talk all the time, like if, and I say that, like, I, I literally say this all the time is if I don't look back at my program a year from now or five years from now, or even like my life, and I'm not like laughing at what I was doing then, like, I feel like I haven't grown enough. And that's, that's something that like you brought up with this book and in the moment you're, you're writing that book and this is like the cutting edge stuff. This is what you're doing. And now, now you're looking back at that and you're, you're seeing, all right, th this stuff is silly. This stuff's still really good. I like this stuff, but um, we can change a lot of this stuff. To me, that means you've been through kind of the ringer of the, the phases in the strength conditioning field, the, 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 the new uh, fads that pop up that like, oh, everybody's on top of this now. Like, this is the new stuff. How do you balance going about embracing that new stuff, that the things that you think could like add that 1% to your program? while also like keeping your core principles of program without like, cause there's a lot of people like it's the Instagram, like exercises that'll pop up out there. And it's like, Oh, that, that's the new thing. Like the Elvin Camaro, what stuff, like that stuff will pop up. And like everybody will like kind of switch over to that style of training. How have you, cause you've been through the process of like, you've seen these fads pop up and then go away, but you've also seen fads pop up and then stay and be stuff that you've taken. So like, how do you go about that? I, I think I, I've talked about this a lot. I think you need to develop, a really good ability to filter information. So, you know, you might be able to look at stuff like, you know, the GOTA stuff and just be like, okay, that's complete bullshit. I, you know, useless, you know, the WEC stuff, the stuff that I look at and think, okay, I, you know, it doesn't, it's not even going to pass through my filter. I'm not even going to pour it through to see if anything good comes out the other side. Then there's stuff like Tony's where you look and think, wait a second, here's a guy who says, you know, he doesn't think that getting strong in the weight room has anything to do with speed development, but you kind of look at his results and you think, Hmm, I need to dump this into the filter and see what comes out the other side and then filter out what out of that you need. And then when you do that, then you start thinking, 
hey, I need to really, you know, maybe I need to meet this guy. Maybe I need to bring this guy in to speak. Maybe I need to go hear this guy speak. Like it's a, it's almost like a distillation process where you're working your way down to, hey, I think this might be useful information. Let me now begin to examine that. I'll give you a perfect example. PRI was a perfect example. I, some people that I thought were smart, you know, Kevin Neal, Derek Cressy, some guys like that, kept talking about PRI. And I'm like, I need to examine this PRI thing in a little more detail because it's making an impression on some intelligent people that I know. And so then it was okay. I got uh, one of the online courses and I sat down and I watched the video and I was like, hmm, this is pretty interesting stuff. Then I said, I need to find somebody in New England who's an expert on PRI. So I found Michael Mullen, who was up in, uh, in Maine. And I said, hey, Michael, will you come down and talk to us about PRI? Will you come to a staff meeting and do a little in-service for us? And he did. And it was super confusing because I don't know how much you've delved into the PRI stuff, but, you know, left AIC, PERC, they've got all these abbreviations. So I spent an hour listening to him and I still thought, wow, I think there's some interesting stuff here. And I said, Michael, I need you to do this again for us in a couple of weeks. I said, and you can't use any abbreviations. I said, because by the time I was done reading what the abbreviation was, you were on something else. And then I realized I was just identifying what you were talking about and you weren't talking about it anymore. I said, so I was a step behind you the whole way. So no acronyms, no abbreviations, everything spelled out. He came down, he did that. And, uh, and it was really good. But the end result was that we don't really use any PRI stuff except we do more breathing. But we do almost zero of what you say, oh, that's PRI. But we spent a lot of time analyzing PRI and trying to see, could it fit into what we were going to do? And I think that's what you really need to do as you move forward in the field is you've got to continue to examine and ask questions and say, okay, why, why is this, you know, the way that it is? What's, you know, um, what's behind this? You know, what's behind the curtain? Who's the man behind the curtain? That's another one. And start to examine that stuff and look and think, okay, what's this person's motivation? The thing I liked about Tony, Tony's a really good example. 60-year-old chemistry teacher, almost like me, literally, same age as me, bald, glasses. And I'm thinking, what's this guy's motivation? Well, I don't think the motivation was to be recognized or to make a lot of money. So I start thinking, all right, there seems to be some, some purity of motive here. And, and so it's, you know, you just keep like, you scrape off a layer, you look, you scrape off a layer, you look, you know, and maybe eventually, you know, maybe it's like archeologically looking at something and saying after a while, oh shit, that's not just a buried piece of junk. You know, it's not an archeological find. Or maybe it's thinking, oh my God, I just discovered, you know, a, a dinosaur fossil or something that no one had seen before. You don't really know if you don't spend the time doing, you know, doing the looking and the dusting off. There's a, there's a time commitment that's involved in getting better. I think just like we're asking our athletes to do. Yeah. And I, I, I love that point because you talk about putting, putting it through that filter. And like you said, even if at the end of the day, you put it through that filter and you committed that much time to that project, if at the end of the day, you're like, well, that either doesn't make sense. That was bullshit. Like some aspects of that, like one, you developed your filter better. And then two, now, now you know that, and you can apply that to your training going forward. It's like that, that doesn't work. Like let's focus more on this end. And that's where I think a lot of people kind of mess up is like, they won't dive into really like that. And I think it comes back to that curious point that you mentioned, like they, they won't dive into those things because they don't, they're talking about like not wanting to waste time and that type of thing. It's like, well, like, even at the end of the day, if it is bullshit, like you are still growing as a coach and as a program from that. Right. And I think the difference is you have to not abandon what you're doing. Like I'll give you, I mean, and there were times when I did, I, we went, 
kind of a little in the West side direction in the very, again, in the nineties, probably 95, 96, you know, I went out and at that time chains weren't easy to find. I had to go to a, a store that uh, sold yacht like stuff for big boats, yachts to get really heavy chain to be able to do this. And, you know, I made chains and leaders and things so I could get them on the bars, but I didn't really find that my athletes got stronger. So I kind of thought, okay, we tried this sort of, you know, special exercises and strength day and dynamic day and, and we did it all. And, but then again, I scraped more through and I said, well, what, what am I missing? And the thing I felt like I was missing was I'm missing steroids. <laughs> right? So maybe this really works because it's, maybe it's novel, it's different, whatever. But the thing that I kept seeing was, wow, there's a lot of admitted steroid users using this program. And I have to look at that and think, does that mean that steroids work or bands and chains work? And the conclusion I came to is the one I came to a long time ago because I, you know, I was involved in powerlifting in the late 70s, early 80s. Steroids work and they can be combined with just about any type of training and they can make you think that that type of training really works. And you know, again, that's why I really got into at one point in my career, really got into like what people were doing in drug-free powerlifting, what people were doing in drug-free bodybuilding and started to look at, um, okay, what do people think? Like, I'm a huge believer now. Whenever people talk about, oh, we do hypertrophy, I'm like, we don't do that. That's bullshit. Hypertrophy is total horseshit. It's like, it's all based on steroids or responders. So we look at a program that some steroid guy did that's super high volume. So I got huge doing this. And you think, oh, yeah, you know, volume builds size. And then I go back to the idea, well, why do all the people who talk about hard gainers tell you that when they're trying to build size, that they're doing really low volume stuff. And you start looking and thinking, wait a second, there's some disconnect here. And one of the big disconnects in strength and conditioning is that if you're a responder, you respond to everything. The NFL is a classic example. NFL is just a, a group of responders. You know, you could literally have a, you know, a pallet of bricks and just say to everybody like, okay, go grab 12 bricks, carry them over here. You know, and when you come back next week, grab 14 and, Guys would get huge. Like you've seen those guys in you know, your football program. You got that one kid. And my, I went through this as a one double A strength coach. I'd have one kid who did everything right and made marginal progress. Followed the program to the T, you know, didn't drink, slept, ate, did everything he was supposed to do. And then I'd have a responder who I knew was not doing anything that I wanted him to do and was, you know, topping the charts in every lift. And, you know, the other guy would look and be like, I know Austin. I know that Austin you know, is out partying every night. And I know that Austin doesn't give a shit about what he eats. You know, he eats, you know, Chick-fil-A and pizza. And he's, you know, he, he just, you know, was number one in the bench press. And I'm like, yeah, he's got more of that whatever than you do. You know, whatever that genetic thing is, he's got a lot and you got a little. And as a result, he gets a lot out of a little and you get a little out of a lot, you know, and that's just reality. And, but I think we get confused because, we have responders touting their program or we have steroid users touting their program or we have steroid users that are responders touting their program. And then we think, oh, that works. But again, the, the other filter is your program. The other filter is taking 100 athletes and having them do the program and then looking and seeing, well, okay, I had 100 people do this. What happened? It's really research, right? But except we can't do research. Like, oh, that's not research. Like if you just train people and look at the results, that, that's not research. And I'm kind of like, eh, I think it's research. You know, if I take 100 football players and I do a program and I realize that, okay, um, some guys got weaker, some guys got stronger, some guys, you know, stayed the same. And then I start looking at, well, what does that tell me? One, it tells me that 
I have three different groups who respond to programming in different ways. But what I, what I came up, the, the end result of this is I became a very much a less is more guy and realized that, okay, um, most people are not responding to, you know, high volume. Most people are not responding to more work. Most people are not, you know, it's not as simple as, oh, you do more reps and more sets and you'll get bigger. That wasn't what happened. It only happened to the, the mesomorphs. And you kind of look and then you start thinking, hmm, maybe what I really have are three, you know, when you think about body types, maybe I just, because I have ectos and endos and mesos, it's like the mesos, doesn't matter what you do. You could have the dumbest, most simplistic strength program known to man. Those kids are going to do really well. The endos and the ectos, not so much. You know, you can overwork an endomorph. You can over, you know, the chubby lineman type guy, you can overwork him really easy and you can break him down really easy. The ectomorph, same way. You know, the tall, skinny basketball kid, you know, you can make his knees sore and his shoulders sore and his back sore really easy. You know, in the mesomorph, you're like, oh, he's fine. Nothing wrong with him. You know, he's doing the same thing you're doing. And you're like, yeah, but he's, he's made, literally made of different stuff. And so I think we get a lot of confusion that way because, and this is what we would talk about sort of in the open too. Um, you know, what do they say? Experience is wasted on the young. And it's like, you know, somebody like me, I've, I've been doing it. I've been coaching. I've been coaching lifters for more than 40 years. I started coaching. I had a world-class power lifter that I trained when I was in my teens. He was in his, he was like 14 and I was 18. And I literally searched the local gyms to find this kid because he had just won the teenage nationals. And I said, I got to find this kid. I can't believe there's a kid that, you know, in the neighboring town to me, he was a kid named Howie Hoffman. He was from Revere, the next town over. And he won the teenage nationals at 14 in powerlifting. And I literally searched him out and then became his coach. And, you know, and his lifting partner and all these, you know, we, we trained together. So I'm at, I'm at probably 42, 43 years of actually coaching people. Yeah. And I, I love the, you, you talked about the, 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 like, what does your program look like when you apply it to a hundred people? Because that is something that I got, I get to experience like every day. Like when I work in my private sector at my gym, like the, most of the athletes that sign up for that are very high achieving athletes that are looking for that next step. And if I were to just take my program and apply it to them, like you said, like anything I do with these guys works. Like it makes me look like a genius and it's hilarious. It's like they come in and are like, as long as we're not being idiots and like just crushing them, like I, they're like, Oh my God, this works. I was like, no, nah, like you work, like your genetics work, man. Like you are a freak athlete and you, you work with the football guys and you see the same thing. It's like, stuff is working for some people stuff's not working for some people and that makes me so if i just sat in my private sector all day with the, the my dudes that i get to work with i would just think i'm a genius all day but i work in this football atmosphere and i come in i'm like oh, now i gotta think a little bit deeper like wh why is this part of the program working for some and why is it not and challenging that but like you said if you're really not put in that situation you'll never really know that well and that's a good like well so for us and that's where you know from a programming standpoint and exercise progression one of the things that I think really helps us. So I had to move positions here so I could plug my computer in. What really helps us is we have adults, we have middle school kids, we have high school kids, and we have elite athletes. And so we're able to see the spectrum and be able to figure out, okay, why, you know, as I said, why, you know, what works? Why, why does it work with this population? Why doesn't it work with this population? Why is this progression really good? Sometimes we'll have a progression that we think is great, and then we try with the middle school kids and we think that's absolute shit like that. You know, like, you know, we can't do it that way. And you're right. I mean, so you need to, and it's that ability to be analytical. I had, uh, actually in, 
of all places in uh so you're where where are you in minnesota where are the st paul region okay um where how far is that from uh st louis park uh like 10 minutes okay i might have to i have a friend who's in st louis park but she sends me a, a picture of her daughter who's 12 with a safety squat bar safety squatting and she's like should my daughter and this is a girl she was a three-time olympian and so she she knows training she trained with me for eight years and she said i don't think that like heavy back squats for a 12 year old who's been in the weight room for a week is a really good idea to you and i'm like nope not at all i think that's a really bad idea and um you know but that's the stuff that again people look and think you know this sort of one size like people have accused us so you know you're a one size fits all program we are i always say we have one program that we think works and then we design off of that based on what we think isn't going to work you know instead of starting you know it's like everybody's individual no i don't think so i think 80 percent of you know 80 percent of the time 80 percent of the program is going to work for 80 percent of the people but if you start multiplying eight times eight times eight that way you know you come out to about the fact that now you're at about 40 it works for about 48 percent of the people but you have to still be able to just have a place to start. You, you know, you have to, you have to something that you believe in. And, and what we believe in for us are things. It's that I, you know, I always talk about balancing risk benefit ratio. I need to look at an exercise and think, okay, what's the risk of this exercise? What versus the benefit of this exercise? And then I have to analyze those two things and I have to see, you know, can I make them balance? If I look at this and think, wow, this is really high risk for this population. And, you know, and it can't, like, it's not like super high benefit. Like I can't get that scale to, to balance. And so sometimes, and that's where things like back squatting, I just kept finding, you know, back squatting is breaking one in 10 of our guys. And again, that's the hundred football kids. You know, at some point with our hundred football kids, we'd have 10 or 20 guys dealing with back pain. And I started to look at that and think, is that too high a number? Is, you know, is, is 10 to 20% of my players actively kind of being in the training room, seeking some sort of treatment for their back pain? Is that too high? And my feeling was, yeah, it's too high. We need to, we need to figure out a better way to do that. And that led us to, at that point, front squatting. And then front squatting probably got us to 10%. And then when we went to unilateral squatting, we basically went to zero. We eliminated back pain as an issue. And I started thinking, well, we eliminated back pain as an issue. And then, strangely enough, I started looking at the loads guys were doing and realized, whoa, wait a second, you know, we've got, uh, we've got guys with way more load than we would have suspected they were going to have. And so then you start thinking, whoa, wait a second, you know, there's, there's more going on here than we thought in the beginning. So, yeah, and that continual dive. And that's, I, I want to switch it just a little bit into, we, we, we've talked about a lot about, your, your continual dive in the field itself and checking things out and going through that filter. I'm interested, especially in somebody like you, of how you have applied and what you've applied from kind of outside of our field that has allowed you to kind of like make some of these realizations and then bring it back into the field. Some of the this things that kind of, and I think this is where like as strength coaches, a lot of times we are, we're so stuck in our own hole. Uh, we're all stuck in like the, the back squat. And that, that's why it's so hard for people to get out of that. We're all so stuck in the weight room that we can't sprint, that type of stuff. So we never like 
take a step out of our field, take a step out and like get an outside perspective. Has there been anything, any big influences from outside the field that have allowed you to make these realizations in the field? Yes. Books. <laughs> and I think I'll give you a perfect example. I can't tell you, um, the last strength and conditioning quote unquote book I might have read might have been like a Dan John book. And I read those more for the entertainment value. Cause I just think Dan's funny and he makes me laugh a lot of times, but I read so little strength and conditioning stuff now. And, but reading books, like someone just alluded to starting to read, start with why. And their reaction was, I didn't know it was a business book. I thought it was about strength and conditioning because you guys always talk about start with why. And it's like, no, it's, it's actually got nothing to do with strength and conditioning, but it has everything to do with strength and conditioning. And I think, you know, doing those, uh, you know, think like a freak, uh, the same thing, nothing to do with strength and conditioning, but everything to do with strength and conditioning. You know, the Freakonomics guys, you know, they talk about conventional wisdom is probably wrong and following it will lead to lousy outcomes. You know what I mean? Like you look at that thing, oh my God, that's strength and conditioning. So I think a big part of it is taking just stuff from other disciplines and, and business I think is a really good discipline. Self-help is a really good discipline to look at and then to apply that into strength and conditioning because the bottom line, and you know, I, I do speaking a lot and I'll put up um, the uh, progressive resistance slide, you know, Milo of Crete and uh, you know, Milo carrying the, the calf every day. You know, you're kind of like, okay, this shit's not rocket science, right? <laughs> get some two and a half plates, get some one and a quarter plates, slow cook your guys, you know, add a little bit of weight to the bar. Don't do the same number of sets, the same number of reps week after week. And you're probably going to have a pretty good program. And, you know, people are worried about like, oh, you know, I just, you know, I love the people who just discovered Russian stuff. Well, what are, you know, Verka Shansky and I'm like, do you guys think this is new? Like this stuff, I've been reading this stuff. Like I was reading the Soviet Sport Review in the 1970s in college. And it's the same shit that they're reading right now. It hasn't changed. You know, they would, there were a bunch of new Russia guys who started writing stuff, right? This stuff's been around a really long time, yet some kid will discover it. I mean, the stuff is so old that Yuri Verkshinsky's daughter is out presenting it, and she's an adult. You know, Natalia, I believe, is the daughter's name, right? Um, but she's talking about what her, you know, her father's work, and she's probably in her 50s or something. So this is all old. This is all stuff that we've seen over and over again. But if there's a new person, I, you know, it's like, it's kind of like goes back to like the Columbus discovering America thing. And then someone like, well, actually, I think the Vikings did. They were here before. And you're kind of like, everybody who gets there for the first time for them thinks they discovered something new. Like, oh, I found something new. And you're like, actually, no, you found something that, you know, a thousand guys before you have already found and already looked at. And in general, may have already discarded, may have already, you know, played with and thought about and said, ah, it doesn't really fit our system, whatever that is. So, um, but it gets back, it was funny, I had the questions that you sent me. I said, one of the notes I wrote was, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect. And the, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect is basically the, the fact that young people overestimate their knowledge in just about every area. And particularly, you know, it's a, it was a study, Dunning and Kruger were two researchers and they, you know, it's like they ask, you know, Young people are extremely certain about their opinions. Old people are not so certain about their opinions. And that's, I mean, strength and conditioning is literally like Dunning-Kruger illustrated because you've got these guys who literally they just got here and they, the first thing they saw, you know, some guys, I love the guy on Twitter, says, you know, in my two years experience, and I'm like, oh, two, like both? Like you've lifted for two whole years. 
So this is great. So you should absolutely be lecturing me today about, you know, about what you think about the field, because I mean, you've got two years of experience. I mean, that's like a, it's like over 700 days, right? It's absurd that these people think the way that they think. And, but they, you know, and there's a ton of these like N is one guys. Like, oh, I did this program and it really worked. And I'm like, yeah, um, that's probably reasonably true. You did the program and it worked. I guess that's okay. But, you know, did you do it with, you know, like I, that was one of the things. And again, you're at a school that's going division one. So you've got what I had at Boston University. What, the one double A football player, the a little too short, a little too slow, whatever guy, you know, who didn't go division one. That's a really good group to do strength and conditioning with. Because it's not all the responders. Your responders are small. You know, your, your guys, you know, your, your supermen are probably 5'6", you know, versus those guys are, you know, 5'11 at Division One schools or 6 feet at Division One schools. And, and your other guys, you know, your linemen are probably, they're a little shorter and a little chubbier than the Division One guys, and they run a 5'5 five five versus a 5' flat kind of thing. But trying to get those guys better will be a really good um, whatever litmus test proving ground for what you're trying to accomplish because they are average. And as you said, like you, you know, you get your, you know, I get like, I, I work with our women's Olympic program for a long time in ice hockey. And I used to always look at everybody and think, yep, hang around these girls long enough. You'll think you can coach, <laughs> you know, because you just show them how to do something and they can do it. Everything show them the clean. They can all look at, they can all clean. I can teach the clean to anybody in five minutes. And, and then you get a middle school kid and you think, I don't know if I'm going to teach this kid in 12 weeks. Like, I'm not sure he'll be good by the end of 12 weeks. And that's if he comes three days a week and really pays attention. And then you start looking and saying, how did I become such a sucky coach so fast? And, and you're like, because the raw material changed. And so your ability, I always think, you know, people, we get interns. Some people are like, oh, I'm not going to intern at Boils because you, know, you got to work with kids. And I'm like, that's exactly what you, you know, if you can teach a kid to clean, you're a really good coach. If you can teach, you know, an Olympian or an NFL guy or whatever, you know, your, your average curious George could teach him. You know what I mean? You could bring anybody in there, but there's a lot of people who've spent a lot of time in, in really good situations and think they're good coaches because they've never been, they've never been out of their little comfort zone where coaching is really easy. Yeah. And, and again, like once you get exposed and that again, having the two experiences for me and the internships leading up to that moment, but of working with that dude and then working with the non-dude and the difference in, again, frustration level and difference in, all right, are you going to figure this out as a coach? Uh, difference in, is this actually work as a coach or did that one athlete just completely put it together for you? Like, is, and that's a lot of times like that athlete is just making you look super good. And are you being challenged as a coach? And I think that's like, just something we don't, I feel like talk about enough. It's like that coach has a, has a really high job. He works with high level athletes. And so we should listen to everything he does. But it's like, is it that, or is it, they recruit unreal people, you know, or they, they just have, and that, that's a skill set. Like if you have that skill set, like that's part of the job, but is it the program or is it the recruiting? Is it like the raw material or is it the sets and reps that we're talking about? It's funny. I wrote an, I wrote another article called that. It's not the program. It's the coaching. And I had, there's a quote. Um, I think it was, it was somebody else might've been Bum Phillips talking about Bear Bryant, but the quote is he can take his in and beat your in, and then he can take your in and beat his in. And it was the basic idea that, you know, Bear Bryant, if he came over and coached your team, he'd win. 
And if he coached his team, he'd win because he's a better coach. <laughs> and, and that's the reality sometimes is that um, it's the program. I think the program is decidedly unimportant. I could sit down with you and say, hey, let's agree on seven exercises. You know, let's say we're, you know, we're going to agree that we like to hang clean and we like bench press and we like chin up and we like, you know, we might have to argue about split squat, but we'll go with like trap bar deadlift. And I mean, we're really going to pick like seven pretty basic exercises. Then what it's going to come down to is how good are you at coaching those seven basic exercises? And then really, as you get like with us, like as you get a bigger business, more people, how good are you at coaching people to coach other people? Because that's the exponential growth of the program. For me, it, how good my business is has nothing to do with how good a coach I am. It has everything to do with how good a coach of coaches I am. If I can make my coaches better and my coaches can make our interns better, now we can have a, an effect on hundreds of kids at a time, which I can't do. Like No matter how good I am or how good I think I am, I'm not going to affect hundreds of kids a day. It's just you're, you're not, you don't have the physical capability to do that. And uh, so, you know, there's just a lot. I just think there's way more to it than people like to believe, particularly as I, as I said, the young people who really are kind of believing in their, you know, their giftedness, their talent, like, hey, I'm really good at this. Instead of looking at it thinking, wow, did I just, you know, you know, did I stumble on a pile of gold and now I consider myself to be a prospector, right? Yes. And the, the, the last question before I want to get to the rapid fire rounds, and this is something that I, it's kind of a selfish question on my part. I, all these questions are kind of selfish because I just like picking your brain and the guests that I have on brain about this stuff. But there's something I've been writing about is kind of like the zombie apocalypse of kids. Um, you, you, you have your sessions start and they just got done with eight, eight hours of school, eight hours of kind of this structured, like, this is what you're going to do. No creativity. Uh, this is how you're going to live your life type thing. And you, you, you have these athletes come in with these blank face, like no energy looks on their face and trying to break them out of that kind of zombie apocalypse through the program uh, and giving them some energy, some kind of life, like what kind of has been your approach? And I, I'm, I'm interested in if you've seen a shift of, because I, I, again, I've been coaching for six years now. So it's like, I've seen six years of it. You've seen way more years of, has there been a shift to where now these kids are walking in as zombies rather than before where they're walking in as kids? Yeah, I don't, it's funny. I read your question when you sent that to me. I don't think so. And maybe we get more thoroughbred type kids. Our kids come in. My problem is reining them in. We get kids who come and they've, you know, now, especially it's worse because we've got, you know, Zoom school. Yeah. So they, you know, my son literally is at Zoom school right now in the basement, probably kind of half listening to this podcast while he's <laughs> watching his computer. And, and when they get to the gym, all they want to do is talk to each other and, you know, kind of jump around. And I mean, they're very energetic. They're not zombied out at all. I think the difference is, well, there's a couple differences. One, for us, uh, we've never allowed phones on the floor. That's why it's really funny. So whenever someone says to me, I've got a great app-based program, I'm like, I don't want it. And, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, I, I don't want a kid with a phone. Like I, la the last thing I want is for my son to have his phone while he's working out. I'm yelling at him while he's working out to put his phone away and you know, get it out of your pocket, put it over there, put it on the table, put it on my desk. And I think sometimes the technology that we're dying to embrace is killing these kids instead. And so I would look at it and think, you know, I don't want apps. I don't want iPads. I don't want, I want them to come in and be social. And we're very specific about, you know, they can't have, um, 
no ear pods, no, you know, I always say, you wouldn't even recognize, you know, but no, uh, no Walkmans. I always say, people look at me and go like, what? Like, what's a Walkman? And I'm like, oh, never mind, you know. But now, you know, it's ear pods. Like, our kids can't have their own music. Um, you know, we control the music. We control the entire environment. Because, again, that's our job, right? Control the environment. Create an environment for learning. Create a cultural environment for learning. I'll give you a couple things that we do. One, um, you know, we, um, we have rules. You can't, like, for instance, like my shirt says, you know, you look at it, it says yard. It's uh, my buddy's gym in California. That's an acceptable shirt. If you came in with a shirt that said, you know, Red Sox suck, Yankees suck, you know, whatever on it, I'd make you turn it inside out. I'd be like, okay, you can't wear that shirt in here. If you came in with a, you know, a beer t-shirt or a, you know, absolute vodka t-shirt, I can't wear that in here. Just turn it inside out. You know, and the kids would look at him, just turn it inside out. You want to stay here, turn your shirt inside out. Our kids, the boys have to have shirts with sleeves. I do not allow a boy to be in a tank top in my weight room because boys in tank tops spend every moment looking at themselves in the mirror, right? But girls can wear tank tops because I want the females to feel good about themselves. And I had one of my friends like, that's so sexist. I want not my friend, but one of my former coaches, who is my friend, but more, at that time he was a former coach. And he said, it's so sexist that you do that. I said, I don't think it's sexist. I said, I think it's really smart. I said, we've got a lot of young females who don't feel comfortable in their own skin and I want them, if they want to look at themselves, like if they want to wear tights and a tank top and look at themselves in the mirror, I want that. I'm 100% for that. I said, unfortunately, my son and his friends, the last thing I want is them in tank tops looking at themselves in the mirror. I said, I don't have to worry about whether or not they feel good about themselves. So you start to look at these things and realize that there's, you know, these kind of different strokes for different folks. There's different sets of rules. And even like us, I always say, you know, shorts have to cover both ends of your ass. So, you know, if some kid can't walk in jail in his shorts, you know, with his shorts down around his knees. And, you know, I'm going to tell him once to pull his pants up and then I'm going to tell him, go home. And, but at the same way, I don't want some girl in there with shorts so short that, you know, the, there's nothing left to, to surprise kind of thing. You know, so, you know, you've got to have everything that you do has to be with a, with a goal, with an idea of creating an environment, a culture, like getting things to be the way that you want them to be. And I think too many people don't do that. Too many people don't, they don't, like, they don't think through every little bit, every little detail. And I feel like we do. And that's why people look at us and think, well, why are you guys being successful? I'm like, because we've thought through the program and we've thought through the culture. We've thought through the coach education. We've thought through the intern education. Because these are all the things, if you think about how you're going to be successful in the for-profit strength and conditioning world, you got to have all of those things working together. Even with us, so for instance, you know, we don't have a lot of football players because I don't like, it's like there's no meathead shit. You, know, you can't come in, you can't throw the dumbbells on the ground, you can't throw the bar on the ground, you can't scream and yell, you know, run around the room, you can't clap and have the chalk fly, like all that shit's like, hey, you know, take that someplace else. But it's all about creating a culture uh, that you want to have. And, and I think for us, I won't say we've perfected it, but we've really thought through all the aspects of that. Yeah, and I think that's so important for the kids. And like you, you talked about for business as well, but I think, and I think it's what leads to success in the business, but the kids come there and now they know what to expect. And we talk about this a lot as our, as a football program and our, our coach is very big into culture and building the culture and doing the same type of things, making sure you're wearing the right shirts, to the workouts, making sure um, cell phones are off during all of practice and meetings and these type of things. But and he, he talks about it in a way of like, you, you want 
boundaries so you know where to go. And, and he's talking about one of his exams was like, if you try to walk into a room with the lights off and you just run into everything and people talk about how like they don't want any rules, they want freedom. And it's like, that's not really what you want because then you have no idea where to go. And if you have this complete freedom, no like restrictions or rules, like you don't really know what's happening. And I love that you mentioned that point is like now, now the kids can come to your gym, they can come to your facility and they know exactly what to expect. They, they, they have that culture. They know they can be themselves. They know uh, what's expected of them and nothing's kind of like random. Nothing's surprised. It's not having to figure it out when they get there. It's all right, this is where we're going to go. This is the kind of direction of the program. Yeah. And, and parents, exactly. And I styled it on that because that was how we always were with everything that we did from an athletic standpoint when I was a college strength coach. It was the same way. And I said, okay, if I'm going to run a business, I'm going to run it. Obviously, you can't run it. I'll give you a perfect example. You can't run it the same way. We, had, we used to um, punish the kids if they were late. Now, and this is in our for-profit business. If you were late, you had to go and get a jump on the bike and do bike sprints. And I, we always thought, that's good to teach these kids. Make them be on time. And then one day, we had eight kids come in, and they were shook. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the kids was like, oh, my God. We, you know, we almost got killed. We crashed the car. But you know what, we just did, we didn't want to ride the bike. So I kind of went through a red light, you know, and I was like, holy shit. After that, I literally, I got a staff meeting. I said, okay, there's no more. You can't punish a kid for being late. I don't care how late a kid is. If he's late, he's late. We are never going to berate a kid for being late again. Because, you know, in, in a team setting, right? If you're in college, it's like, hey, get your ass there, figure it out. But when you've got a kid who might be coming from two towns away to your facility, and you might have one kid driving six other kids, and they're all 16, 17 years old, that's a, you know, it's a totally different thing. So again, you've got to be like, you've got to be looking and thinking, okay, I can't run it completely like a college because I might be doing some things that, some things that I think are positive that end up being negative. But at the same time, I have to have, like you said, I have to have a set of rules. I have to have expectations because the other thing is parents like expectations. I had a kid one time, you know, uh, and he, you know, he, he literally walked up to his father and said, give me a dollar because he wanted to get a water. And I looked at him, I yelled, I said, don't talk to your father that way. And his father looked back at me. His father was ready to jump at me for barking at his kid. And he was so stuck because he's looking at me and thinking, geez, Mike just did what I should have done to my kid. <laughs> and, and, but I didn't do it. And I literally looked at the kid. I said, your dad's not an ATM. May I please have a dollar? Ask politely. And the poor dad was like, just, he didn't know what to do because he wanted to be mad at me because I spoke to his kid in a way that he didn't think was appropriate. But the reality was the one that was inappropriate was his kid. And, but I realized like, that's a really good lesson. It's a good lesson for everybody. You know, we have kids, kids wise off to coach. We had a kid one day, I, I was like, you leave. I said, you got, is your ride here? Yeah, my father's outside. I'm like, good. Go tell him, go tell him we just kicked you out and you can't come back. And he was like, I don't care. I don't listen. I'm not listening to you guys anyway. And he goes storming out. He comes in two minutes later crying apologizing. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, cause we sent him out and his dad's looking like an asshole in the park, excuse me, in the parking lot because his kid's out a half hour early and he's coming out because he was wise enough talking back to one of the coaches and you know, the kid's thinking he's going to get away with it. I'm going to go out and tell dad, I told them. And the dad's like, no, no, you're going to go back and apologize. Cause you know, this isn't the way this is going to work. And, and, but in some points you might lose a customer because you know, we've had people think, Oh, you know, you can't talk to my kid that way. And it's like, yeah, well actually we can because it's my business and I can, you know, if I think that your kid is behaving in an inappropriate way, then I'm going to tell him that. And if I think he shouldn't come back, I'm going to tell him that. But all that stuff is really what creates your business because other, you know, parents talk and, you know, sometimes like if you said, and I'm just, cause I'm talking to you, if I said, Hey, I just threw Austin out 
And then someone else is like, that Austin's such a jerk. Anyway, he's always talking back. He never does what he's supposed to do. People, then they think, well, you know, they threw Austin out. You know, and people would be like, oh, good. He should have thrown out of things a long time ago. You know, no one ever threw him out of anything. And that's why he's a, such a little punk, right? And so you're creating your culture. You're literally, you're creating situations where things that probably don't happen in sports happen. Because again, if you're talented, let's just say Austin's the best player, you know, when you're in hockey land, you know, in Minnesota, Austin probably gets to do whatever he wants as long as he plays. But then suddenly Austin gets to college and he's not the best player anymore. And he's totally unprepared because everybody just let him do whatever the hell he wanted to do. You know, that's, you're really not preparing kids for the next step if they run the show, if they do, you know, and some people, because they're paying you money, you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm a slave. You know, I got to, I got to work for the, I got to work for the dollar here that this guy gives me. I always, when I started out, I, I have a business partner and I said, Bob, you know, we're, we're either going to succeed or fail. I just want you to understand that. I said, but we're not going to change. And I said, if we succeed, great. If we fail, oh, well, you know, we'll both go do something else, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be in a situation here where the inmates run the asylum and we're just worried about, you know, I'll do anything for a dollar kind of thing. And we've been, I mean, really successful. So it's worked. Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of the only way to be successful because if you approach it the other way, like you said, that's where your culture goes and that's where you stop attracting people. That's what you see in salmon sports. There's a really, yeah, read, uh, you went in the locker room first. John Gordon is a great book about that. And it's about uh, when he was working with the Atlanta Falcons, and, but it's an excellent book about sort of locker room culture. And they talk about, it's actually uh, John Gordon and Mike Smith, who was the Falcons head coach. And Mike Smith talks about getting fired and why you get fired. And a lot of it was, you know, compromising to win a Super Bowl. You know, we started to compromise. We started to take guys that, that we didn't really want or guys that we didn't think fit our culture, but we felt we needed to get to the next level. And the result was the next level was the unemployment level. <laughs> but it's a really, really super good book. You would, you'd really like it. I recommend it to people all the time. I think it's one of the best culture books out there. I like it. And so before we go, coach, we're going to do rapid fire rounds and, the, the first question is about books and I just want to bring this up because it is, this question is kind of my litmus test of the coach. And I haven't really said that before, but it's, I ask, what are some of the favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of to see kind of where their head's at and all the good coaches that have really like enjoyed bringing the podcast up that, that, that book has been outside and they've mentioned the same thing that you mentioned is like the strength conditioning books like are there. Uh, and then you have the coach that you bring on that is super sure, like 100% confident in the, in everything they're doing and like everything they're doing is right. And every book that they recommend is the strength conditioning books. I just, I thought that was funny. Super training. Everybody should read super. Training. <laughs> yeah. Whenever anybody says that to me, I'm like, Oh my God, please. So the, the, the first question is what are some of the favorite books that you think you can oh, recommend? How to win friends and influence people. Number one, all the time. Dale Carnegie, original version, 1920s. They did one for the digital age that is not as good where they updated the analogies and stuff. It's not as good a book as the original book. So, that would absolutely be number one. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People would probably be number two. Those are kind of my two like must reads for people. Whenever they tell me, you know, I, I want to be a anything, like I don't care what it is. I want to be a strength and mission coach. I want to be a freaking astronaut. I don't care. I tell them to read those, those two books. Um, Goals by Brian Tracy is one I find myself recommending to people all the time, particularly people who are trying to figure out what they do want to do. Uh, I love that. And then I really like, like I love to start with why. I think start with why is great. I think, um, Oh my God, now I can't think of the name. I wrote it down. I'm going to actually look in the, uh, I wrote it in my notes because uh, 
that doesn't really matter, but it's uh, oh, most likely to succeed. Sorry, I, I was lost there for one second, <laughs> which is actually a book about the educational system. Excellent book, like incredible book just about thinking. Um, and there's so many. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge reader. I've been in a little bit of a, a cramp lately, so I have piles of books around and I can't. I'm actually reading one, um, Alan Alda, right now that Anthony Renner had recommended to me called, I think, um, if I, would I understand you if I had this look on my face? Would I, have this, would I have this look on my face if I understood you? And it's just about communication. And it's actually a lot about theatrical improv, strangely enough, is a lot of what they talk about in the beginning. But uh, it's really about sort of the art of communication and how you communicate with people who maybe are not from the same field that you're from. So I, I, I mean, I could go on forever about books. I was going to say, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Some of, some of the books that you mentioned, like the, the seven habits is like one of my all time, all time books. And it's just, and it's not even, and this is what I recommend when I talk to people is like, it's not like strength conditioning at all. It's like live your life right. And then the strength conditioning stuff or whatever your job is, will take it's care of itself. Is, you know, you know, it's, it's so strength conditioning. It's so coaching, right? Seek first to understand, then to be understood. Think win, win, you know, all the things in seven habits. I quote that thing all the time. I always talk about people, <laughs> the law of the farm, like this. So like the law of the farm is strength and conditioning, right? You can't, you know, you can't have corn tomorrow, right? You, you got to grow it. You got to plant it. You got to water. Like there's so much in that book that really is strength and conditioning that it, it amazes me that when some people look at stuff and think like, if anybody looks at books like that and think, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with the field, I'm like, then you don't know what you're doing. You're not there yet because you're still fascinated by super training or, you know, some other silly, you know, Tudor Bomper book or something. It's like, you know, that stuff is, is primarily useless information that's, you know, great to spout off in your other kind of conversation with other strength and conditioning coaches. But the reality is it, it, it's a people field. Getting pe people used to ask me, you know, how were you able to succeed in the field? I said, I can get people to do what I want them to do. I can sell my idea to an athlete. I could get an athlete and figure out how to get that athlete to do what I want them to do. And it's not always the same way, but I could always figure out how to do it. I, I never had an athlete, I don't think ever, who didn't eventually buy in. But it was because when you're a student kind of of the human condition, you can figure out, okay, what makes this guy tick? Like, what is it about this guy that's going to get him to buy into what I want him to do? So, sorry, I know you got more lightning round and we're getting, we're probably, I, I got to be off in a couple minutes. So I was going to say, I'm trying to get you out of here for the I, hour I'm limit. Not, but, I'm not I'm, 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 luckily I don't have something till four, so I can go a couple minutes. <laughs> okay. Then the next question of our in quotations, lightning round, um, who's a guest that you think we should have on? Who's somebody that you think the listener can get a lot out of? Um, have either Kevin Carbren and Eric, two guys, two young guys that work with me. They're really super smart. You'd love them. They're people. Okay. That you should get to know those guys. Like they're, they're like you and you would enjoy them. Boom. I'll reach out to them for sure. Next one. What's kind of next for you? And I think this one's interesting. Um, for somebody a little bit later in the stage, but what's kind of that next, uh, the goal, the next step that you're reaching for? Realistically, what's next is I'm going to finish this last book. And then um, I want to spend as much time watching my kids play as I possibly can. I've got a daughter that's a really good uh, ice hockey player. She was, I think she was second in division one in power play goals last year. and had like 22 goals. So she was, she's a pretty good player. And then I've got a son who uh, plays lacrosse, just made the Under Armour All-America game as a 15-year-old. So I just want to be, I want to be dad and go and watch games and, you know, hopefully eventually, you know, they the goal of the coach is to eliminate the coach. 
So hopefully relatively soon when we get through this whole COVID mess, I can, I can work my way out of my business and coach when I, you know, I still coach when I feel like it now, but even coach less, feel like maybe I'll feel like it less and I'll spend less time. And I'm not, I don't have a lot of future goals. I'm going to be 61 in a month and I'm looking at like the the nice down slope. I like that. When this, um, when this all, all this coaching is over and you talk about eliminating coach when, when that is, is done for you, what do you kind of want your legacy to be above your coaching career and life? I looked at that. It's really easy. I want people to look and think that I was a, that I was a really good husband, that I was a really good father, that I was a really good coworker. If, if I can kind of walk away with that stuff, I will be really happy. Like I don't need to go down as, you know, one of the great strength and conditioning coaches of all time. I don't at this point honestly care, but um, I think if you know people can look and say, "Hey, he was a really good friend, and he was you know really good to his wife, and he took really good care of his kids, and you know we worked well with the people that work with him," I, I always try to make sure. You know, when I say to people, I try to not use the word "work for me." I try to make make it obvious to people that we work together. I introduce them to people. I say, "We I, this is so and so that I work with." You know, I and because I think again, we talk about culture and language. How you make people feel? You know, when I say Austin works for me. You know, I'm trying to assert my dominance, like, oh, I'm the boss. He works for me. I pay his salary kind of thing versus looking at it and saying, hey, this is guy, this is, you know, one of my coworkers, this guy, this guy that I coach with. It makes people think differently about their job. Yeah. I love that coach. That's an awesome way to end. Thank you for being on. Thank you very much for having me. Like I said, I, I, I told you, I heard Tony's podcast and I said, I got to get to know this guy. So uh, if you get to Boston, let me know. Awesome. Will do. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.